Thank you. So it's great to be with you. I'll try. How, how are we doing? We can, you can all hear me? Okay, terrific. Excellent. All right. So I, someone just pointed out to me a couple of minutes ago that this is also the pharmacy track. And so I, I, that, that shocked me because I, I didn't actually realize this, but, but there is a slide that has drugs on it. So I, so actually if there's, if there's any of you hoping to hear about drugs, I, please stay because we may need your, I may need your help. So that's, that'll be great. So I've, I've, I have to admit I've done a little bit of a, I've pulled a bit of a coup. I have to confess just for a clear, just for, to clear my conscience here that the official title is non-communicable diseases. To me, there's really only one that matters. And so unfortunately, that's really the only one that we're going to be particularly focusing on today. But I'll be very, very um, happy to address questions. This being uh, at the root of so, of so much of the chronic disease in the developing world, and this being my particular area of expertise, uh, the, the, the real focus of what we're going to talk about is going to be the global diabetes epidemic. Now, actually, could we have the lights out? Because that way you'll be able to see the subtleties of the slides a little bit better. Would you mind flipping the light switch? Oh, yeah. Hey, thank you. All right. Okay. So basically the, the subtitle is Tackling the 21st Century Epidemic, or, or, or rather Tackling the 21st Century Goliath. And this has really been our theme through all of this, is that when anybody talks to me about what a problem diabetes in the, is in the world right now, the immediate thing that they say always is it's of such mammoth proportions. How can you even do anything about it? It's, it's escalating so fast. There's so, there's so many millions of people that are affected. And so that, that usually gives me a chance to put, try to put it all in context a little bit for them, to just remember David and Goliath. And, and regardless of whether they're believers or not, to be able to, to bring out that story and to just say, here were all of these mighty warriors of Israel. They looked at this big guy and their, their hearts quaked and they just thought, shoot, I can't go out against him. I'm going to get killed. But all of a sudden, here's this little rural shepherd boy who comes forward and says, who is this pagan who is challenging the armies of the living God? And so only he had, only he had the perspective and so the, the bottom line then is that as we've tried to start a program, which I'll be talking about in, in terms of trying to actually tackle this epidemic, I would have to say we've been up against some, some pretty big Goliaths at times. And yet one has to just keep, keep this in perspective, keep sights on this. And so I would I, I introduce it in this way because each one of us fights our own Goliaths wherever we might be. And so just to encourage us then, uh, to keep that perspective, basically, uh, who is this pagan Philistine who's challenging the armies of the living God? So how did I get interested in this? I want to say this because there are, there are many of you contemplating your career paths at this point. And so for that reason, I wanted to spend a, a, a minute talking about how, in fact, I became interested in this problem. And it was at the age of 12, growing up in Toronto, Canada, reading the story of Banting and Best and how they discovered insulin. So for any of you who may not know the story, there was a country surgeon here on the right, uh, Frederick Banting, who after he came back from World War I had trouble building up his practice. So he was teaching anatomy on the side to try to make ends meet. Woke up in the middle of the night with an idea, which he jotted down in his little notebook. And the idea was, uh, no one had been able to isolate insulin up until that moment. Oh, this is a ph oh, pharmacy relevance. All right, very good. So no one, no one could isolate insulin. And can anybody tell me why? Could anybody tell me why you couldn't just grind up the pancreas and inject it into somebody, unlike the thyroid or the adrenal glands? So what would be the problem? Grind up the pancreas tissue, try to inject it. 
they'd be dead. That's right. The, the digestive enzymes would go to work on their arm, and that would be a big disaster. So nobody had a nobody had a solution of how to separate these exocrine and endocrine secretions until Banting woke up in the middle of the night, and his idea was you ligate the pancreatic duct. All of those digestive juices would would backtrack back up to the exocrine part of the pancreas. They would digest away the exocrine pancreas, and what would you have left at that point? So you have beautiful islets of Langerhans making pure insulin and other hormones. And so, so this would be a very exciting way to potentially isolate insulin. And so he had this great idea, and he thought it was such a great idea that he went to visit the medical school where I, I attended, which has a bit of an, an, an attitude problem. But anyway, um, so, so anyway, we still have in the museum the letter that they wrote back to Dr. Banting. Dear Dr. Banting, thank you so much for making the trip to tell us about your very exciting idea of how to isolate insulin. After further reflection, we think that your time would be better spent building up your surgical practice in, in your small town. So thankful, thankfully for the rest of the world, Frederick Banting was a very stubborn man. And so he persisted, went back again, and they said, all right, Dr. Banting, if you absolutely insist on this, uh, for one summer you're allowed to use a lab that hasn't been used for many years. You can have the services of Charles Best, a young student that doesn't have anything better to do for the summer. And if, if Dr. Banting, by the end of the summer, you have not cured diabetes, you're going back to your town. So... With, with, that, with that small amount of pressure on them, uh, basically they spent a long and very, very hot summer before air conditioning uh, getting so frustrated with each other with these 20-hour workdays that they were actually having fist fights. They were getting so annoyed with each other. And uh, thankfully, Banting was a skilled surgeon, so he did do his operation, and he did ultimately isolate his, his special islet extract. He treated his very first patient, whose name was Marjorie, right there. Now, shortly before the picture was taken, Marjorie had been in a coma and actually was very close to death. Then Marjorie got injected with the islet extract. And as you can see here, Marjorie became very perky and in, in very short order was running around and wagging her tail. And, um, and they detected that there was no glucose in her urine. So this was a major victory. Now, in those days, it didn't take long before you could go and, and, use, and, and do experiments in humans. And so this is the very first patient whose name was Teddy. And the treatment at that time for diabetes, type 1 diabetes, in 1921, the treatment was starvation. That was because they knew that if they starved these children, uh, then there would be less availability of, of nutrients that would turn into ketones. And so in the, because the ketones would ultimately kill them from ketoacidosis, the idea was to starve them, and you might prolong their life by a couple of years, uh, but with no quality of life. So this was Teddy, very close to death. As you can imagine, these children and their parents were, were delighted to, at the idea of trying the insulin for the first time. And you'll see here Teddy, about a month after he started his <laughs> insulin treatment. <laughs> So you can, you can get an idea of why when I heard this story when I was 12 years old, it was pretty clear that when I grew up, I wanted to study diabetes. In fact, it was the most interesting disease I'd ever heard of. Not that I'd ever heard of many diseases at that point. But I, I resolved I was going to grow up and study diabetes. And so the bottom line was, that was in essence what happened. Uh, step by step, that was really the path that I ended up taking. And that ultimately took me to New York City, where I've been doing diabetes research for the last 18 years. One of the great frustrations, though, as I, as I traveled down that path, was that 
when I first embarked on the study of diabetes, it was always believed to be a disease of affluence and a disease that only affected the first world. And so I used to say in dialogue with the Lord, um, I think a number of us, it seems, um, have rather impertinence perhaps when we talk to him at times, but to say, why, why is it? that you seem to have planted this passion in my heart to study diabetes, and that seems to be the direction that you've been taking me without a question. But why is it, O oh Lord, that I will never be doing anything that's relevant to poor people, and I'll never be doing anything that's relevant to the developing world? Uh, and that was a question that I posed to him for a very long time without a, a clear answer. Until... Until 1996, I was invited by good friends to go on a medical mission trip to Romania. I'd never been on a mission trip, and I refused immediately. Um, I just, by this point, I was doing diabetes research. I said, I'm going to be of no use. It's only going to be parasites and all that kind of stuff, and I'm, I'm no use whatsoever. Well, I, I made the mistake of praying about it, and, and um, anyhow, <laughs> basically, the next thing I knew, I was on the plane. So the thing was that I was the busiest member of the team team by far. They had all finished dinner and they were lounging around after dinner and I was still seeing long lines of patients. So why was that? Well, the culprit, actually the main culprit, can you see him is in the middle slide here. So the biggest delicacy in Romania is, is the pig. And in fact, uh, he is enjoyed in, in many seasons of the year throughout the winter by curing pig fat in salt. And then you can take, oh my goodness, what a great meal. You can take a big slab of pig fat and put it on a slice of bread, go out in the fields, and you've got a whole meal. You can actually deep fry just about everything you want in pig fat. Um, <laughs> and so it, it's really great. So I, um, I had a bit of an uphill battle here. Now, the, the best... Well, there were some interesting parts to all of this, but one of them was that uh, I was much younger at the time and more slender. But anyway, I was trying to counsel these people on, on how to become a bit more lean, whereupon the husband of one of these patients just looked at me, and, and you could just see the look on his face. He just turned white. He looked at me, and he said, Do you mean to say that you want my wife to look like you? <laughs> and so... So that, anyway, that was that was an encouraging moment. But um, hmm. so anyhow, we, we really made some strides that day. We also made we also made some really great strides the day that I told them all to eat vegetables. Turns out that's of course what you feed to the animals. And then and then I I, I went over even better on another day when somebody was asking me what to do about their very dry feet. They were fishing, and I told them, well, the, the, the best remedy of all is actually to take pig fat and <laughs> smear that around your feet. Well, you can just, you can just imagine after all this, telling their, telling their beautiful, ample wives to become emaciated and eat, eat animal food. Now I was telling them to take their number one delicacy and put that on their feet. So, um, so anyhow, that, that, that was sort of the inauspicious start to my global diabetes career. Now, what was, it, what was interesting was uh, a year after that trip to Romania, I ended up on another mission trip, and this was up in the mountains of Peru, up in Juan Cavalica. And what was extremely interesting there was that if these people, uh, these people presented with a lot of, if for any of you that have been there, you'll know that they present with a lot of infectious diseases. They also present with a lot of respiratory problems from the smoke that they use to cook indoors and all this sort of thing. But intriguingly enough, we didn't diagnose any adults with diabetes or hypertension. We even saw one lady that was 100 years old. Um, but in any event, it seemed that in stark contrast to Romania, 
what we encountered up there, which is quite unique nowadays, is that this group of people had actually managed to preserve their traditional lifestyle. So they had a low-fat diet, very low actually in animal fat, and very low in animal products, a lot of different types of vegetables. You can see them there in the markets. For instance, there's about eight different types of potatoes at least, and they tend to have a lot less starch and more vitamins than we're used to. They were very, 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 very active up there. Um, and, uh, yes, yeah, so a low diabetes prevalence. So it really opened our eyes to the concept of lifestyle in different parts of the world and, and diabetes. So those observations have been followed by many more. We've had a chance now to be in, in, in uh, many parts of the world where what all of these places have, have in common and, and all the other places that aren't marked, is that they're all facing a global diabetes epidemic. So it was really as I started getting involved, in, first of all, in mission trips that then led to more and more teaching opportunities, it became clear to me the wisdom of the Lord that I was not able to appreciate when I was in my training years, when I kept saying, why? Why diabetes and not something that's useful for poor people around the world? And so finally it was on these multiple mission trips that it finally started to sink in. This was my calling. So then the question is, then what do you do when, you're, when your life, what you're being paid to do, is to do diabetes research in the developed world, and you're doing that in a lab and so on, and, and, and yet you discover that your passion is actually to be with very poor people in the developing world. So, so what do you, in fact, do? I was very, that my school motto, this logo is down there at the bottom, uh, for a good reason. Uh, it was actually through, after years of praying and wondering what in the world I was going to do, uh, intriguingly enough, uh, four years ago I was being recruited to Boston, and at that point the people at my school said, uh, so, so why do you want to go there? And I said, well, they're, they're going to let me start a program in global diabetes, and that's my dream. So then they said, why do you have to dream in Boston? Why can't you dream in New York City? So anyhow, that's, what, that's how I was able to start my global diabetes program. So, as, as with everything, though, and as we've learned through this conference, that does not mean it's been a bed of roses. I think I thought I, thought I was just going to go out there and slay Goliath the next day and it was all going to be over, uh, but it, it hasn't been. Uh, but it has begun us on a very interesting trek, which I'll tell you about. So, what are the statistics and why do we say there's a global epidemic? They were predicting over 366 million cases by 2030. The, the actual reality is that last year, 2011, they discovered that there were already 343 million cases of diabetes in the world. Does anybody know about how many cases of HIV AIDS there are in the world? So somewhere between 30 and 35 million. And so I just mentioned that the current prevalence of diabetes is 343 million. So we are, we're over 10 times the prevalence of HIV-AIDS. So some people would say, well, yeah, but diabetes is just about a little bit of sugar. That's certainly what all my patients say. But anyhow, um, so that's, we try to sort of get a little bit beyond that. But the interesting thing, and what I wanted to show you this global map, is the fact that, yes, look at North America. And look at the fact that we're facing an epidemic. Look at the fact that projected increases. You'll see the light bar is 2,000 numbers. You see the dark bar is projected numbers for 2030. You can see they're projecting a 72% increase. That's a big deal, of course. It's big, big time, steeply going up. But look at what's happening over here. China, 104% projected increase. India, 150% projected increase. Already number one in the world. Um, 
sub-Saharan Africa. They're not the leaders in diabetes in the world, but projected a 162% increase over this time period. So the bottom line is that, yes, we're facing an epidemic in North America that is completely dwarfed by comparison to what's going on in other parts of the world. So what are the facts of global diabetes? 90% of new cases of diabetes will occur in developing countries. Does that surprise anyone here? Yes, it certainly surprised me big time. So for a person requiring insulin for survival, these are some statistics. So for the United States, this thankfully has been changing dramatically. And certainly people with type 1 diabetes getting diagnosed now can have very good outcomes if they really have good diabetes control. But in the worst case scenario, when, when the control was not good, their life expectancy might be decreased by 15 years relative to what it would have been. But how does this compare to other parts of the world? In Mali, once they get diagnosed with diabetes and they require insulin, they'll live on average 30 months. In Mozambique, they'll be dead within 12 months. Does anybody know why that might be? Accessibility of insulin, that's right. So if they're type, truly type 1, there's so many issues with insulin, so they can't get it. Any other issues? Storage. Storage, storage of the insulin, malnutrition. And we've seen this a lot. Even if they get the insulin for free given to them from the clinic, and even if they manage somehow to get it refrigerated, uh, they go home with this effective insulin, give themselves a big shot, can't monitor, and then we find out that they died in their sleep. Uh, so I think a lot of them die from hypoglycemia. They say that every 10 seconds around the world a person dies from diabetes-related causes. I think that's probably a big-time underestimate. I think a lot of the time we don't always correctly attribute diabetes as a cause of death. So I'm going to walk you through the different types of diabetes and how they present in the developing world. So type 1 is less commonly diagnosed than in developed, developed, that's an error. So it's less commonly diagnosed in developing countries. Can anybody tell me why that might be? That's right, it comes on so rapidly. And what, what, what could that look like or what could that, how could that get misdiagnosed, I guess? Yes, that's right. So a lot of people think it's cerebral malaria and then they, they'll, they'll treat them with the only thing they've got, which is anti-malarials. So many times in these various um, rural clinics, they won't, either they won't be able to monitor glucose, usually not, they usually won't be able to measure it or they might not think to measure it truly. And so uh, it's probably very frequently, as you say, they succumb quickly to death with a misdiagnosis. But there's another thing. Type 1 is an autoimmune disease. And what would you all say about autoimmune diseases in different parts of the world? Well, there's the genetic part to it. That's correct. But there's something else. Even things like MS, um, even when people move from one part of the world to another, their incidence, their risk changes. Does anybody know about where in the world, what parts of the world do you get more autoimmune disease and what parts of the world do you get less? Ah, the further the, up toward the poles, you get more autoimmune disease and around the equator, you get less. Probably a lot of things. Maybe vitamin D deficiency, maybe different viruses. Nobody is really completely clear on that. Uh, but yeah, so thankfully, there may truly be less type 1, uh, but certainly there's a lot less getting diagnosed. And once they do get diagnosed, short life expectancy, we've talked about why difficult to manage. We've mentioned the insulin issues. There's virtually no self-monitoring. Uh, so does anybody want to hazard a guess as to how much it costs for a glucose test strip? Uh, 
in different parts of the developing world? A lot. I, th- I don't know if that was what I just heard, but yes, the answer is a lot. So it, it's so of course we, we think about test strips maybe being up to a dollar. The cheapest that I've ever really seen them is about 45 cents in India. And every company, coincidentally enough, every every company, they're all made in Europe, even though India, of course, can make a lot of things, but these test strips come in from Europe. And intriguingly, coincidentally enough, every company sells them for identical prices. We hear that they're made for just a few pennies a strip. So this is, this is an issue, a big-time issue. Um, at the very bottom there is some good news. For young people with diabetes, there's a, actually a couple of organizations. Uh, one of them is Insulin for Life, and the other one is Life for a Child. So Insulin for Life, Life for a Child, both of them will adopt basically the care of a child with type 1 until they're a certain age. I think uh, in some cases it's up to 25. As long as there's a designated healthcare professional that can look after the patient, but they will get insulin and and a couple of test strips a day. Certainly this is not absolutely ideal treatment, but I think they're trying to work on improving that. But it really is the first hope that children in the developing world might actually have access to insulin. Yes, that's that's right. So that's a good question. Yes, only in developing countries, and not all country, not all developing countries. They're sort of adopting them country by country. Once they have people in country that can actually be responsible for the program, so type two does occur. Yes, big time is now occurring, big big time in developing countries. This is Johannesburg. Sort of shows a reason why we're getting into this in developing countries. So we, we, haven't done a, we haven't done a lot of these countries a big favor by introducing our westernized diets. The combinations of refined sugars, calorie-dense foods, and more prepared foods, and the sedentary lifestyle, they're transitioning. They used to be very active, and now they're, they're in having urban lifestyles. And then cultural beliefs. So if you're in Africa and, um, and you look, and you're overweight or you're obese, uh, what would people tend to say to you? What, what types of adjectives might they? What, what? Yeah, wealthy, you're making it. That's great. You're prospering. Your husband is feeding you well. Otherwise, if you're, if you're, if you're not, then they say, what is your husband? Are you, is, he, is your husband beating you? Is he mistreating you? Um, and then if you're a man or you're making it in business, it's, you're, you're doing well. If you're a woman, it's, it's a sign of beauty as well and fertility. And another thing, what if you're thin and you're living in Africa? What do people, what do people say? Mm, ah, he's probably got HIV AIDS. So, yeah, that's right. Now, there's one other reason why we're dealing with so much type 2 diabetes around the world, and that is that all population groups other than Caucasians are at increased risk. So you'll hear all this. You'll hear, well, you hear about Japanese people that move to Hawaii and, they, and suddenly they get a lot of diabetes. You hear about the Pima Indians, which are probably number one in the world for diabetes. You hear about African Americans, Hispanics. All these population groups are, are at high risk. But I think that what we should say instead is it's actually probably normal to be at high risk for diabetes with the lifestyle that we have. This is not a normal lifestyle. And therefore, it's probably normal to get diabetes on this lifestyle. What's, what the anomaly is that Caucasians have some relative protection versus other population groups. And it may have to do, people think, with how many generations of our current lifestyle we've had, uh, leading to certain adaptations, epigenetic, etc., that may make Europeans relatively protected against all these extra calories, whereas other population groups don't have that protection. 
So this is Uganda. This shows you don't have to have wealth. Uh, this is a woman, lovely woman in the middle who works as a housemaid. Um, she has di- she's 52. She's got diabetes. She has unstable angina, hypertension, the whole gamut of the chronic diseases. And these are some delightful medical students who are uh, taking care of her. And this is another indication that you don't have to be wealthy to have diabetes type 2. So this is a, a lovely woman. She's living in Bangkok. She's living in a community of people that live in packing crates under an overpass. And they've been settled into this community for so long that they have their own little store. Uh, Just slightly off-site there is a big pile of empty Pepsi bottles. And uh, so what you can see here basically is you don't have to be able to afford decent housing in order to afford to become obese. We could say that in this country, and we could say that around the world as well. So what's the graph on the left? This shows the changing supply of calories and fat in Asia over a 20-year period up to the year 2000. You'll see that the intake of fat doubled over just 20 years. And so this woman would be very typical of that, that now her diet would consist of being able to buy very cheap, poor-quality cooking oil in the market, and she can fry and refry and refry and refry her foods over and over again. What happens, by the way, to the cooking oil is she refries and refries it. That's more hydrogenated. That's right, exactly. So it's much more atherogenic. It seems to have much more of a propensity to cause diabetes. So we mentioned the rural-to-urban transition. These are two lovely women in um, Antigua, Guatemala. They spend their time sitting in the marketplace selling goods um, which are made. By the way, where are those goods made that these women are? Can anybody just give me a very wild guess? Where, where? I think I heard the right answer. China. Bravo. That's right. Yes, I would love to say they made them in their basements. But no, these goods are, are made in China. And they're sitting all day long selling them, which means that on one side of the world, you had people that a generation ago were working in farms outside, and they're now working in factories. And on the opposite side, every other part of the world, people are sitting around selling those goods that are made in China. And so, and then, of course, uh, the the wonderful um, provision of all these fats. We can cook our tortillas, etc. Now, ha- um, have any of you taken a food history, by the way, in, in Guatemala Has any, or, in, or in other parts of Central America? So uh, if you ever have, there's a few things that, that come up. One of them is the word tortilla. Well, I was, I was a bit naive. I sort of thought of tortilla in the singular. Um, but I, I uh, anyhow, so I would say, okay, all right, you're having a tortilla and blah, blah, what else? Well, 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 it took me a while to wise up to that, that it was actually tortillas. Was, it was in the plural anyway, and, and it meant about five of them uh, generally with every meal on top of the white rice, on top of the white potatoes, on top of the bread, on top of the mangoes, on top of the fruit juice, et cetera, et cetera. So you should be getting a picture here. The, the other thing I learned about taking a food history in Guatemala was uh, you'd ask them how much sugar they take in their coffee. Well, the answer was, oh, a little bit of sugar. That was the answer. It was always oh, a little, a little bit, of, a little bit of sugar. So that was like, okay, great, just a little bit of sugar. Well, that ultimately meant that you put just enough, just enough sugar into your cup of coffee that the spoon would be able to stand straight up. <laughs> yeah. So anyhow, I, I had much to learn. So we talked about thrifty genes. And so what what it would seem is that our ancestral lifestyle would have been, and for the Pima Indians, this wasn't that long ago. Think back just 100 years to Pima Indians 
um, would have gone through this pattern of intermittent starvation, and then they would have a meal, um, and they, if they were able to catch an animal, it would be a high-protein meal, and then they would expend a lot of energy in order to catch that animal. So um, basically then it seems, genetically, epigenetically, this is all very complex and beyond my area of expertise, but it seems that we we haven't even begun to get a handle on this yet, but it seems that there was a certain amount of programming that took place to favor certain genes and probably turn, turn certain genes on epigenetically so that you would become more efficient. So when that rare animal happened to, to cross your path, um, or should I say after, after many hours of sweating and running and that animal happened to cross your path, it would be a very good thing if you happened to have less efficient genes so that your body could store that energy for much longer. And so you were efficient, and we could say that this was a thrifty genotype, or some people say a thrifty phenotype if it's more of the epigenetics. But basically, of course, what's happened is, uh, unlike the European population where there was a much, much longer time of being settled, raising animals, being able to drink milk, being able to make cheese, being able to add to your diet every, every day, add hundreds of calories to your diet because you could tolerate lactose, you were raising those animals. All of this was meant that you had a very stable diet, high intake of fat, etc., very consistent. Uh, so they did that over a long period of time, whereas with the Pima Indians, this was a very acute modernization. They went through all of that within less than 100 years, or probably, probably less than 50 years, basically. All of a sudden, from being almost starving, during the Second World War, a lot of food was being delivered to them, and suddenly then, they had a lot of calories, a lot of dietary fat, and once the food, of course, arrived, which one of us would be running after animals if, if it was arriving in trucks? So I can, say, I can speak for myself. I can tell you what the answer so that would be so basically as, as a consequence very very quickly they changed their lifestyle but their genes didn't rapidly change and so consequently they, they're now left with this burden of obesity insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes and we're seeing that in so many population groups around the world now I want to talk about a couple of other types of diabetes which are very relevant to the developing world and now starting to become relevant here as people start moving here. This is a phenomenon called malnutrition-modulated diabetes. How we first encountered this was, we didn't describe it, I'd love to say we did, but we first encountered this without knowing anything about it when we were treating patients in the wards in Uganda. We saw these very, very thin patients. Um, at the same time, we were teaching medical missionaries at the meeting in Kenya where, where they were coming from around sub-Saharan Africa. And they kept saying, we're seeing these very thin people with diabetes. And I'd keep saying, well, they, they must be redistributing their fat. They must have it in their abdomen. They've clearly got fat somewhere or they wouldn't have adult onset diabetes. They kept saying, but no, we're surgeons. We know there's no fat in their abdomen. And so I was like, oh, oh, okay, all right, all right, okay, okay. So, so I, I then, in my travels to Uganda and partnering with the big medical school there, I spoke with one of their endocrinologists. They don't really have a formal training program, but they sort of call themselves endocrinologists and go around and treat people. So they, this woman, very fierce, uh, quote, endocrinologist, I asked her, what are these thin people with diabetes? Oh, they're drinkers. They're drinkers. They just burn out their pancreas with drinking, and that's what it is. So, so I thought, okay, that's interesting. So I went in to meet one of these patients, lovely little woman, wearing a pink fuzzy dressing gown. So I tried to sort of beat around the bush a little bit and say, as we were taught in medical school, now when you drink, 
um, what, what do you tend to like to drink? And she, and she said to me, I don't drink. I'm a born again. And of, of course, I was completely convinced that this woman was not doing any drinking. And I thought, this is intriguing that this, these people are suffering from this condition and the people that are even the experts in diabetes in this country do not know what they're dealing with. And they're labeling them all as drinkers because you imagine the pain of that, that you have this disease that's difficult to treat, you're not drinking, and, and on top of it all, you're being blamed, you're being told that you're drinking, etc. So uh, it made us realize we have to try to learn more about this and find out what, in fact, is really going on. So it turns out that there actually is a literature. The very first description of this was in Jamaica in 1955. So they called it J-type diabetes, just 13 people that happened to be to show up in the diabetes clinic who did not meet the criteria for type 1 or type 2. They were all very thin. They'd all been really malnourished. And then subsequently, it's been described many other places. So I'm going to just tell you a little bit about what has been described. They all seem to have childhood malnutrition, seems to be both protein and calories. And when they present as young adults with diabetes, they're still malnourished and underweight and as we mentioned, if they, if they sort of present sick, they often think that they've got cerebral malaria. They don't necessarily check glucose levels. It turns out if you actually start treating them, and if people do start treating them, they usually think they're type 1 because they're thin. Um, if they're not mislabeling them as drinking, um, then they'll get labeled as type 1, and then they get put on insulin. But what's discovered is that they require an awful lot of insulin, um, but... They're not ketosis-prone. These people really do not have type 1 diabetes. They often have neuropathy. Can anybody tell me why they might be more likely to have neuropathy, these kind of folks, rather relative even to regular people with diabetes? So they're malnourished. Vitamin. Vitamin deficiencies on top of diabetes. So it's a, bit, it's a real problem. So where has it been described? Um, and among young patients, it's a, so a lot of it has been described in India among lean young people and in, in Nigeria, Indonesia. I'm going to show you a map, actually. It's been documented now in many, many parts of the world. But probably among young people in developing countries, it may account for about half of diabetes. Again, remember that type 1 is less common in, in, in near the equator. And so actually, this type of diabetes makes up in a, in a large amount of lean young people. So why do they get diabetes? Isn't it sort of the opposite of what we would think? We think about people being overweight and getting diabetes. Well, intriguingly enough, there may be some things in common. When you have too much fat, then the, the, your fat cells get overloaded with fat and the, the lipid goes to the liver and to the muscle and it causes problems and it makes you insulin resistant. But it seems that you have the same problem if you have too little fat. So these folks um, have reduced fat mass, so it seems that their cells just can't hold enough lipids, so it then seems to go to these tissues, or so we believe. We're in the process of investigating this now. It seems that if you're developing through these critical stages of early development and you're really malnourished before the age of two years of age, it seems that your pancreas doesn't develop properly. So you meet the stresses of later in life. You're, you have the death of a parent, a lot of psychological stress. You have TB. You have other stressors. 
which all cause insulin resistance, your pancreas is not capable of meeting the challenge. And so the, the, you can have decreased insulin secretion. And then the other thing is infectious diseases, inflammation, all of this opposes the actions of insulin. It seems that parasites actually live in fat tissue. This is one new exciting observation. Why, why would a parasite like to live in fat, by the way, just as an aside? be very well nourished. So we're discovering now that more and more parasites like T. cruzi have been discovered in fat. It seems that they take up residence there. They pull in uh, inflammatory cells. This releases a lot of signals, a lot of inflammatory factors that we know cause diabetes and insulin resistance. So it's all intriguing. We're, we're researching this now, but it's all quite an in- intriguing scenario. There was another hypothesis about this, and that was that it came from eating cassava. So that's the, as you probably know, but anyway, those are the roots that you're seeing this woman selling in the market in Uganda, and you just um, clean them off, grind them up, and mash them up, and, and, and boil them up. And Anyway, boil them up, mash them up, and, and, and it's a starchy food that a lot of people eat. It's very nice and filling and so on. So it's very popular, of course, in many parts of the world. So Pros for the theory that cassava caused malnutrition diabetes. So MMDM, or malnutrition diabetes, is actually found in areas of high cassava intake. Now, the interesting thing is that there is a cyanogen that's present in cassava. And if you don't prepare it properly, if you don't soak it long enough and really get that cyanogen out, then you could actually be exposed to cyanogens. And in, in animal studies, those, those cyanogens can actually be toxic to your beta cell. The other thing is that it seems that when you're protein deficient, that seems to aggravate the ability of these cyanogens to damage your beta cell. So this has all been built up as a nice theory for malnutrition diabetes, this cassava. But, but there's a couple of, of things that, are, that go against that. Malnutrition diabetes has also been reported in areas of low cassava consumption. And um, cooking and fermentation, which most people do to cassava, do decrease the cyanide content. So it's, it's not... The jury is still out on the cassava hypothesis. Here are some faces. I think that I need to tell you a, a couple of quick stories just to show the magnitude of, of the human side of the problem. This woman here was 27 years old. She had developed diabetes at the age of 17, came from a very poor family in rural Uganda. Time of the picture being taken, she was the single mother of a 10-year-old child She came into the hospital because of a thigh wound that hadn't healed, and at that time they discovered that she was in end-stage renal failure. She was in almost constant pain. It was probably from acid reflux, but they didn't have medication to help her for pain, for reflux, or for anything. So she was lying on her mattress, just whacking the mattress with her fists to counteract the pain. She couldn't get dialysis. It cost $250 a week, and so most, most people in Uganda will not ever get it. And so she died about a month after that picture was taken. But it's that, and her face will always haunt me. This is a 15-year-old boy, Ponciano, who we diagnosed actually in a rural clinic out in rural Uganda. His mother was a widow. He'd had symptoms of diabetes for three years, losing weight, uh, always thirsty and so on. But his mother, the widow, could not afford the 20-minute taxi drive to get him to the local hospital. So he had never been diagnosed. So he was then diagnosed with diabetes. We got him to the big city hospital. He, he was one of the very few that managed to get insulin and so on, supplies, went back to his village, some, some monitoring. Some people would kindly take him into the city every so often to see a doctor. Um, we heard that he had been seen 
by one of the members of our medical mission team looking well, doing well. And that night, in the middle of the night, on Thanksgiving uh, 2005, he died in the middle of the night. We're sure it was from hypoglycemia. And then Isaac, um, 15-year-old orphan boy, would sell his insulin to buy food for his grandmother. And his, his parents had, had either died, had, had, were believed to have both died from HIV-AIDS. His, his grandmother was 82. So he would often come into hospital after a month of not taking any insulin, and he would be uh, hyperglycemic and unwell. At one point, he developed TB. We had a lot of drama. After we got involved with his case, there's, he really had no one, so we were helping with his school fees and his medical care, and he had a very, very devoted nurse at the hospital who would take care of him whenever he came in. Um, one day he came in, um, very high blood sugar levels, his TB acting up, and, and for some reason this nurse couldn't be found. They turned him away because he didn't have the something like $10. Ironically, we'd given the nurse a lot of money. If, if only he'd found her, everything would have been okay. They turned him back. He went back to his village. He was brought back again the next day in coma, and he died. So... I would say just about every young person that we've met so far in these scenarios has died soon, fairly soon after diagnosis. And it really brings home the point, we have, to, we have to do better. We have to do better. And that's really what's launched us on this quest. To do research, to try to find out, is there better ways to treat these people? We believe that there are. We believe that insulin is not the solution, especially when you can't monitor and you don't have enough food. There's, there's one final type of diabetes I wanted to mention, and that's fibrocalcific pancreatic diabetes. You can see it here on a plain film, or you can see it on ultrasound. You can see sometimes really big calcifications, sometimes tiny calcifications. We're not sure why they develop, but, but these people tend to also be young and malnourished, and um, this calcification can lead to fibrosis, so they can have problems of both their exocrine and their endocrine pancreas. They can have a lot of pain. They can get into a, a malabsorption, and I mentioned the abdominal pain, chronic pancreatitis. Intriguingly enough, there are some HLA associations with this, so it could be a combination of heredity and malnutrition. And we're not sure at all why the calcifications develop in the pancreas, but when they do, that they can go on to cause a lot of trauma to the pancreas. And then the management, at least what is being managed now, is that they're usually managed similarly to type 2 diabetes, which is probably better than... Um, than giving them insulin. Now, malnutrition-modulated diabetes is in the red stars, and fibrocalcific pancreatitis is in the yellow stars. You can see there's a lot of overlap, but you can also see this pattern throughout uh, developing world or low- and middle-income countries, uh, generally speaking, uh, closer to the equator, but you can see that there's now many countries where this has been reported. So this is what led us to form what we call the Global Diabetes Initiative. And we wanted to have a vision statement for this. And so this was to combat the global diabetes epidemic by building strategic partnerships in research and education. And those strategic partnerships in North America, as well as with institutions in the developing world. And so our, our actually our most flourishing partnership is with Christian Medical College in Vellore, India. And for those of you, to me, it was just this 
talk about epic plays. But it just, I'd always heard about CMC Valor, about Paul Brand, about all this exciting stuff. And, and Ida Scudder, this in, indomitable woman physician in 1900, is founding this place as a little one-room place in her father's house and, and how it grew from an ox cart up to this um, incredible place with 3,000 beds and it's just it really is just an unbelievable place the, the level of care that they deliver their capacity for research and for education uh, the, the volume of patients and yet the, their ability to deliver high high levels of care to them all so we we started a partnership with them as of four years ago in order to actually research this problem of malnutrition diabetes and the beautiful thing is they have incredible technology that you can see that magnet. Uh, they can use that to actually monitor how much lipid there is in muscle and liver. So that's very exciting. They can do all this calorimetry to do energy consumption and consumption of, of carbohydrates and lipids and so on. Uh, they can do these insulin clamp studies, which is what we do back home in the U.S. as well. So we infuse in all different things, insulin and different hormones, and we can measure labeled glucose and do all these fancy measurements to see how sensitive they are to insulin. We can measure how much insulin they secrete. We can do all kinds of things. Um, and the intriguing thing is we can do all these sophisticated things, but we can do them in a population of very poor people that would never stumble their way into our, our research facilities in North America. So this has been a great partnership. The other partnership with them has been partnering for education about diabetes. So our, our Indian partners, by the time we showed up on the ground, um, had already educated over 100 hospitals around India in complex diabetes management. So we wanted to get a hold of them because we felt that their management would be much more oriented toward resource-poor settings, much more practical and so on. And so we, we've been learning a ton from them. What they do when they do this comprehensive education is they bring in everyone from these rural clinics or rural hospitals. They bring in nurse educators, podiatrists, clinic administrators, nutritionists. They give them an intensive, and, and then there's doctors, nurses as well. They give them an intent. They all have their own streams. So they all have their own curricula. And, and basically, they come for about two weeks, have this incredibly intensive education. They then go back home, and then there's follow-up visits. There's follow-up by, by teleconferencing and so on to really bring them up to speed with such a complex disease management. They also have gone into some very exciting things to get people in India interested in diabetes and how to prevent it. And so with, with India being number one in the world for diabetes, that's a kind of a daunting thing. So they go into the schools. They, they make use of World Diabetes Day, which is in November, and they do this whole thing. So they go into schools. They have these uh, poetry. Children make up poems about diabetes and so on. They have quizzes about diabetes. They get into these cooking competitions. Oh, my goodness. These incredible meals that they produce that are, that are supposed to be diabetes healthy. They do dancing for diabetes because dance is such an important thing in, in Indian culture. And, and introducing fitness is, is otherwise our type of fitness would be a bit countercultural. But dancing um, is something that, that has great appeal. So we took a lot of these ideas from what our partners were doing in India, and we brought these into our partnership with the big medical school in Uganda. So we started doing diabetes education projects, diabetes conferences, where we would bring in doctors and nurses from around Uganda and give them comprehensive, focused education on diabetes. This, it was just phenomenal. These people were so eager to learn. The handout that I just showed you, a 150-page handout, was the first book on diabetes that they'd ever been given. They listened with rapt attention from early in the morning to late at night. They were just the most incredible audience. At the end, we had a ceremony. They each got a certificate with their name on it. It was extremely exciting. So the question is, what do you teach? What are the 
the main, main, main things that you want to get across when you're in low resource settings. Um, of course, there as here, same message. Exercise and diet are the cornerstones of diabetes management. Everybody that ever says to me, so, so, is there, is there a breakthrough? Do you have a cure? Is there a breakthrough for diabetes? I always say, yes. They say, what, what is it? What is it? I say, it's diet and exercise. It's, so anyhow, that, that, uh, so the bottom line is, whether it's here or there, these are the cornerstones of diabetes management. It's just getting that across. There, if, if it's mango season in Africa, you have to be addressing the mangoes. I mean, the, the, you cannot get away from it. Diet is unbelievably important. And then as we talked about the changing lifestyles, the lack of activity, these are extremely important. So some practical advice. What do you tell them about eating? At least five daily servings of fruit and vegetables, whole grains, restrict fats, eat more fish and lean meats. Now that may not be affordable for a lot of the patients in these places. So what we have to do is start to learn what are the good protein sources that they can grow? So what are the, what are the plant sources of protein? What are they? What are they? Legumes? What are they the, um, the ground nuts in, in, in Uganda, the sesame, simsim they call it. The um, different types of peas can often have protein and so on. So um, soybeans and other places. So that these getting to know what crops grow well, what, are, what, peop, what do people like to eat that are good plant-based proteins. Um, and then... If, if you can, encourage the lower-fat dairy products, using less fat in cooking. This is a major, major issue. And then using portion control, which is difficult. Portion control is very difficult if you're all eating out of a communal dish. If your pattern of eating is that you would have a leaf and you would just keep helping yourself to the stew that's in the middle of the big pile of mashed plantains, etc. You just keep piling that in. You have no idea what you're eating. So even part of this is just teaching them, take everything that you want to eat and have it right in front of you so that you actually know what you're eating, so that you actually have a sense of being able to control how much you eat. Now, glycemic index. And so on the left is what happens with when you have a certain amount of glucose as carbohydrate, and on the right, the same amount of carbohydrate, but in the form of lentils. And so this is what happens if you have diabetes. This is what happens to your blood sugar profile with pure glucose versus lentils. So the message that we're really trying to get across in each area where we go to teach is trying to get a better understanding. What are the lower glycemic index foods and really teaching the value of them as opposed to these simple sugars that got introduced. And then exercise, a lot of that is trying to be culturally sensitive. Uh, a lot of this type of thing, the swimming pools, the bicycles, etc., may not be feasible. And so we, that's where we have to get very creative with dance and other activities, etc. I did promise there would be one slide with drugs. Um, so I thank you for staying so long. Um, so anyhow, this is just to show that, of course, diabetes is a progression. This is type 2 diabetes, which is most of what we face around the world. You can see the progression from impaired glucose tolerance to type 2. We're now, we now have a lot of evidence that starting metformin early, when they just have impaired glucose tolerance, can help to prevent type 2. We have evidence as well that thiazolidinediones will also help to prevent type 2, but because of their risk profile being a bit higher, we tend to just mainly push metformin for impaired glucose tolerance. The good thing, though, with the thiazolidinediones is that pioglitazone not only is just becoming generic here, but has been generic for quite a while in India. So... It offers a cheap, uh, um, it actually offers now a cheap generic form, sulfonylureas, much as we don't tend to like them so much here because of the idea of beta cell failure, et cetera, and the limited window where they work. 
and also certain risks of hypoglycemia, etc. The bottom line is that they are the cheapest generics, of course, for treating diabetes. And so that, that means that, like it or not, they're, uh, they're being used extensively around the world, uh, particularly gliburide, which is glabenclamide in other parts of the world. Um, incretins, we always think of those as being out of, t- out of sight, expensive, as they are over here. But interesting enough, in India, a lot of amazing things are being made generically now, and, and somebody's turning a blind eye. But you can get actually um, a generic bieta, you can get generic analog insulins, Uh, coming out of India, now starting to supply Africa. They say that the quality control of these things is quite good. And then insulin, take-home message. Uh, um, For type 2 diabetes, there will come a stage where, for good management, they will need insulin. This becomes a problem in so many of these countries, as we talked about, storage of insulin. Just one quick word on this. The best way to store insulin in a hot country is in a clay pot. Water on the inside, leaches out, keep the, the... bottle of insulin in a little baggie to keep it clean inside. But as the water leaches out, there'll be evaporation off of the surface of the pot that will cool the inside of the pot, keep it in the shade, um, or else bury the pot deep down in the earth um, because deep down is much cooler. So there are ways of keeping insulin relatively cool. And so the, the, the point up here is the high glucose, as it starts to get higher with the onset of type 2 diabetes, you only get into the microvascular complications, the retinopathy, neuropathy, uh, et cetera, when you, when you get into overt type 2. But the bottom line is that all of the other, the chronic disease, the atherosclerosis, all of the other issues begin with impaired glucose tolerance. So that's why we're keen on starting metformin early. And again, hyperglycemia is just the tip of the iceberg. Um, we talked, we, we, the, the whole issue about chronic disease in the developing world, as here, is the bottom line being these, these patterns that people in these developing countries are getting into, just as here, the central obesity, and then all these other consequences, the hypertension, the lipid problems, the coagulation issues that make them at risk for MIs. Um, and so the diabetes is just the tip of the iceberg. And so just one final note, amputation is a big, big issue where we go in Uganda. And once people have amputations, it, it affects their lifestyle and their lifespan very, very dramatically, as you can imagine. The prostheses are just out of sight expensive and they cannot get them. Uh, intriguingly enough, our Indian partners, because of the history with leprosy and Paul Brand and so on, had already set up an incredible workshop where very, very inexpensively they can make prostheses, but it's very, very skilled. So one of our goals as part of this partnership is really to be able to, to get this, this type of skill um, to get that to Uganda. And then uh, just a quick note about the medical mission meetings, which have been an enormous joy, where we teach medical missionaries from around sub-Saharan Africa at the Kenya meetings, and then missionaries from around Asia at the Thailand meetings. And that has been an enormous opportunity for me to learn a lot from from my missionary colleagues. We've been doing some advocacy, as we did here, to Congress. But I just want to end with how, in fact, we want to combat diabetes in in these countries. We have to do more research. We have to understand these presentations, particularly malnutrition diabetes, in order that we can get treatments that are feasible and affordable. We have to be able to prevent diabetes in these places. We have to go after a lot of education, not just the healthcare professionals, but the community leaders and patients. And then we have to start educating the people that give out the money because they don't yet care. So so that's a priority too. And then there has to be a lot in terms of developments, the economic, agricultural, and health policies. So yes, we are facing Goliath. 
Um, and in all earnestness, I would ask, I would seriously ask for your prayers if you might be so inclined. Um, I would say that ever since we started this program, every conceivable issue and problem has, has developed and has come against us. So I would say it, it's not by might and not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord God Almighty. And with many thanks for all of those that have been involved. And thank you for listening. So it's probably probably the end of time, but if anybody has any questions and wants to stay.